Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is June 24th, 2021, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Mill. The title of today's podcast is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Guidelines for Recurrent Low-Risk Chest Pain in the Emergency Department. And our guest skeptics, yes, there's going to be two today. The first one, though, is Dr. Chris Carpenter. He is a professor of emergency medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. Also, Academic Emergency Medicine Deputy Editor-in-Chief and Society for Academic Emergency Medicine Board of Directors and American College of Emergency Physicians Clinical Policy Committee. Welcome back to the SGM, my BFF. Well, thanks, BFF. It's been a uh, way, way too long. My last episode of SGM was episode number 299, Learning to Fly and Test for COVID. This year of COVID feels like a decade, huh? Oh, yes. Can you remember the before COVID times? Seems like ancient history. Yeah, I'm having a hard time reflecting on what it was like before we had PPE in every patient encounter. Anyways, this is an extra special S-Gem. It's a combo of an S-Gem Extra and an S-Gem Hop, and we're going to put it together into one very special S-Gem episode. Because AEM has decided to publish guidelines, and we're going to review the first one today. But before we do that, I wanted to reach out to you, Chris, and have an interview with you so you could explain these new GRACE guidelines to the SGMers. So I have a few questions for you, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to guess. How many questions do you think I'll ask you? Ooh, I know this. 22. Wrong. Eh, thank you for playing. Now, if you had gone with my third favorite number, that's 42, because of, of course, Douglas Adams and the answer to life. My second favorite number, 11. Because sometimes you just need to go a little bit more and you get to push it beyond 10. And so 11 is my second favorite number. But no, I'm going to ask you my official favorite number of questions, and that is 5. You ready to go? I'm ready, Ken. Now, sometimes when I can't, like, sort of, you know, get 5, I have to subdivide them. Or if I have more than 5, which is this case, I throw some at the beginning at the end and don't count them as part of the official Five. So I'm going to start this without asking you an official question. This question is, what does GRACE stand for? So GRACE is an acronym that stands for Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Care in the Emergency Department. And we give more details about where we came up with that name in an editorial that's going to accompany this first guideline, and we'll put that in the show notes. Well, I really like that, GRACE. I mean, it's just got such a great... I don't know, feeling to it, doesn't it? Grace. And we want to approach patients with grace. We want, to, we want to approach them with guidelines that are reasonable, not thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. And it be appropriate for the care in the emergency department. So it's focused on us. It's not outside organizations, other specialties saying, here are our guidelines, get with them. These are our guidelines generated organically from a grassroots movement, and we can say we have our own 
grace. So I really like that. So that wasn't our first official question. You ready for the first official question? Ready, Ken. Whose idea was it in the first place to do these clinical practice guidelines? Well, this is a long story, Ken, and I'll try to abbreviate it. Over a decade ago, SAM was exploring the idea of having guidelines, and they knew that the ASAP clinical policies at that time had been around almost 20 years. Uh, Ultimately, the the board at that time decided this was not time to pursue guidelines for whatever reason. And then about five, six years ago, Jeff Klein became the editor-in-chief of Academic Emergency Medicine. And when you assume the mantle of editor-in-chief, you come to the board with some new ideas for the journal. And one of the ideas that he threw out was we need to develop clinical practice guidelines for Society for Academic Emergency Medicine. That's where the idea came from. I didn't find out about that uh, until about two and a half years ago when Jeff told me that he had proposed this to the board and uh, he wanted me to join the the team and uh, help to develop these guidelines. So what you're saying is uh, it was Dr. Klein's idea, but Dr. Carpenter was tasked with the implementation. You didn't hear me say that. Oh, no, I said it. But I'm not surprised that this took place over, you said the germination of this was about a decade ago, because you and I have talked quite regularly that knowledge translation can take more than 10 years. And so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, this idea got rolling about 10 years ago, and then Jeff Klein came into the picture about five or six years ago and pitched the idea to the board, and then two or three years ago, it started to get operationalized. And here we are in 2021 talking about the first GRACE guidelines. But this leads to my second question. Uh, why do we need more guidelines? I mean, isn't it just adding more noise? Don't we need more signal in medicine? And wouldn't it be better if we had less guidelines and better guidelines? Ken, you and I have talked about this area, this idea of information overload for our clinician colleagues. Um, We did that on an episode of uh, EM Abstract several years ago. And I agree that we do have information overload, hundreds of new articles coming out every single day on PubMed that it's impossible to keep up with. My opinion is that uh, clinical practice guidelines uh, ease that load for the clinicians. They are content experts and writers who synthesize all of that information for a pertinent question and give some actionable answers about how to use that information in your bedside care. It is true that clinical practice guidelines exist at the American College of Emergency Physicians, and CAPE also produces clinical practice guidelines. However, with all the guidelines that CAPE and ASAP have produced, there are so many topics that impact physicians and patients every day that guidelines have not addressed, and I don't think will address at ASAP or CAPE anytime soon. SAM and Academic Emergency Medicine also wanted to explore the potential advantages and disadvantages of GRADE. That's grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, which the ASAP Clinical Policy Committee has chosen not to use with clinical policies. Although GRADE has existed for over a decade, it's the guideline development framework endorsed by 110 organizations from 19 countries and is one foundation of Guidelines International Network. So there were multiple reasons we felt there was a a there there for SAM. And I know that there are even guidelines for writing guidelines. And it was back in 2013 that the Institute of Medicine came out and said, we really need to raise the bar. We need to do a better job in producing guidelines, improve the quality of guidelines. Did you want to make any comments about that publication from eight years ago? 
Like, I do think we need guidelines we can trust. And, and personally, I trust the ASAP clinical policies. I think they do a tremendous job. Obviously, I'm part of that group, so I'm biased. But I think that we, we can do better. I, I think the strength that grade brings to the table is transparency. Um, and we'll get to some of that transparency in just a bit. But I, I think that there are different ways of developing guidelines that our colleagues can use um, and that we can beat our other specialists to the punch and not have them produce guidelines that they're going to uh, put upon us to enact. Well, I do like the idea of emergency physicians getting involved in the process of producing guidelines for clinicians that are providing emergency care. And that's a nice segue, actually, into the third question that I had for you. And I wanted you to just walk through the GRACE process. How how does this happen? How does how does grace come to being and how does it produce a guideline? It's actually quite complex, Ken, and we'll put a link to a video that we made. It's a 20-minute video that walks people through the process. But just to briefly give the SGEM audience a glimpse as to what this looks like, the grace team consists of, of three bodies of personnel. There's a steering committee that's the same individuals throughout the years uh, who, who give us some oversight and direction, make sure we're picking topics that are apropos to SAM. A second group is the writing team that changes with each guideline, and the writing team is selected based upon content expertise for that topic. Uh, and, and often we have volunteers that step forward once the topic is selected within that area. The third body is the methodologist, and, and right now that's four individuals who have taken the grade training course and guide each new writing team through the grade process, which is a bit complex. Overseeing this entire effort is the SAM Board of Directors who, who do an annual conflict of interest reporting assessment and, and then determine if anybody on the team that year should not be part of that year's guideline. GRACE prioritizes topics based on three criteria. The criteria number one is a common ED scenario with scant, high-quality evidence to guide practice. Criteria number two is that common scenario elicits substantial physician angst and malpractice risk, which third criteria results in significant practice variability. Since these three criteria encompass dozens of scenarios that have never, never been evaluated by ASAP's Clinical Policy Committee, we strive not to reevaluate topics that have already been covered by the Clinical Policy Committee, which is one reason that it's important to have someone who straddles both worlds, somebody who's in the ASAP Clinical Policy Committee and part of GRACE. If I understand you correctly, you prioritize topics based on three criteria. It's got to be common. So this is, this is our bread and butter stuff that also doesn't have a really strong literature base to guide our care. And that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's substantial physician angst. And I can understand the angst. If you don't have really high quality research or evidence to say, hey, you really should be doing this. If there isn't a lot of high quality evidence to say that, then it's really hard and you will get practice variability. And that's the third part, that there is significant practice variability. So it was those three things. All right. So, Chris, how often is the GRACE group going to put out a new set of clinical practice guidelines? Right now, Ken, we're shooting for one new guideline every 12 to 18 months with the writing team that includes emergency medicine, patient representatives, and pertinent specialists for that topic. For GRACE 1, it was a cardiologist. Adhering to the GRADE approach, the GRACE writing team creates PICO questions that you do every week for the SGEM. Uh, they prioritize the outcomes of those PICO questions and collaborate with a medical librarian to create a search strategy based on those PICO questions. GRADE strongly encourages that a systematic review and meta-analysis for each PICO question precede the guideline writing. 
So we're supposed to be writing a systematic review within that year and then write the guideline within that same year. After completion of the systematic review, the real work begins by summarizing the issue underlying the PICO question, synthesizing the evidence, generating the guideline recommendations, and the strength of the guideline recommendation can be upgraded or downgraded by the writing team based on risk of bias, imprecision, indirectness, healthcare disparities, costs, and that balance of benefits versus harms. And, and we do that upgrading or downgrading with the recommendation as a group using a process called the grade evidence to decision framework. After that evidence to decision framework meeting occurs, the completed guideline document is then circulated to pertinent organizations like ASAP, CAPE, in the case of the chest pain uh, guideline, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and patient stakeholder groups. And we give them one to two months for commentary. And then we go back and look at that commentary before we actually publish the, the GRACE guideline. So we get input from other specialties, uh, other organizations. I like that you're making the tent bigger. And it also fits in that framework of evidence-based medicine with those three pillars. The fact that you are getting patients involved in actually soliciting what they value and what they prefer. I think that's a real strength because the literature informs our care and it guides our care, but it doesn't dictate our care. And then you reach out to some content experts. And in this case, you're going to have cardiology involved and a cardiologist who can add their view and their perspective as a clinician onto that. And then, and then the methodologists, oh, having methodologists and research librarians. I mean, it sounds like a really, really strong, vigorous process. Yeah, I think it's a strong process that is only going to get stronger with more experience. And I'll tell you, Ken, when we get together as a methodologist, we talk a lot nerdy. Oh, I would love to sit in on one of those meetings, but let's get to question number four. And this is why did you pick recurrent low risk chest pain to be grace one, the first grace clinical practice guidelines coming from AEM? Well, the grace steering committee bandied about some uh, different topics, uh, some of which were subsequently selected for the the current grace work um, and ultimately picked recurrent low risk chest pain. Uh, because we had done a survey of the membership, uh, we had done a survey of the editorial board for SAM, and they felt that this was the topic that that hit the mark for a first guideline, a, a sweet spot where we could really sh- highlight the strength of the GRACE approach. Well, we certainly do see a lot of people coming into the emergency department with a chief complaint of chest pain. They don't come with a label that says, I've got a dissection, or I've got a PE, or I've got a STEMI. They come in saying, I have chest pain. And so this this happens quite commonly in the emergency department. So I can understand why Grace decided to pick this common emergency uh, department presentation. Yeah, and that's that's the difference between Grace and the ASAP clinical policies too. Is that they start from a diagnostic standpoint. They they have the NSTEMI guidelines. They have the aortic dissection guidelines. We're starting from a syndromic perspective, a symptom, which is what the patients present to us with. And I think that that approach is going to help some of our clinicians see the value or lack thereof of the evidence that we're synthesizing. Yeah, it takes a more a priori as opposed to post hoc approach, because again, patients don't come in with their diagnosis. Usually they don't come in labeled. I have this. I have that. They come in with a I have chest pain. I have a headache. I have dizziness. I have abdominal pain. And then we have to try to figure out what that diagnosis is. So I can understand that there is a different approach between 
what AEM is doing and what ASAP is doing, and obviously both have some merit. Yep. Follow-up question, though. So this would be 4A. See how I snuck in extra questions? 4A would be, um, what are your next three guidelines? Because you mentioned that you'd already got some in the pipeline. So we've got low-risk chest pain. That's going to be number one. What are the next few uh, GRACE guidelines that the SGMers can expect to be seeing? Well, GRACE 2, Ken, is going to be recurrent low-risk abdominal pain. We're about 13 months into that one right now, so uh, we're getting to the evidence-to-decision framework time frame. GRACE 3 is going to be acute dizziness in adults, uh, and that's going to be led by Jonathan Edlow and David Newman-Toker, the two experts in dizziness, as far as I'm concerned, in North America. And GRACE 4 is going to be non-opioid addiction management. Probably going to focus on alcohol there, but we're very early in the process right now. So you've got low-risk chest pain, belly pain, dizziness, and substance use disorder. You're you're hitting some pretty common things. Yeah, yeah, that's our intent. All right, question five, last of the formal questions. What are you really hoping to achieve? What does Grace want to see happen with these clinical practice guidelines ultimately? Can I be honest with you? I'm still in the learning phase of this process, learning grade, learning how to do grace effectively. Um, There's some pieces that I think we still need to do better, but my wish list is um, threefold. Number one is that ASAP, SAM, CAPE, and others collaborate to disseminate one another's clinical practice guidelines and review unique topics because there's so many common scenarios that exist that no emergency guideline has yet touched. Uh, There's just a world of opportunity there for us to really help our, our brothers and sisters in emergency medicine. If emergency medicine doesn't step up to the plate with these clinical practice guidelines, I guarantee you that non-EM specialists will, and and they will then hold us accountable for their recommendations. So my first wish is collaboration. My second wish is that the International Federation of Emergency Medicine and other non-U.S. settings adapt the GRACE guidelines for their own practice environment. I tried really, really hard to do that with GRACE 1. I reached out to IFM with this idea. Um, But we haven't made any progress yet other than a handful of international folks to tell SAM that American academicians cannot and should not dictate practice for dissimilar settings. And guess what? I agree, which is why I propose that IFM adapt GRACE for their settings since the scenarios are the same, the evidentiary basis is the same, it's just the interpretation for your setting that differs. And then my third wish is that GRACE can ultimately find extramural funding to sustain this effort into the future including updating guidelines every five years or so, which we should be doing. SAM provides some support, but the heavy lift of each year's writing team is based largely on altruism and dedication to the field. So those are my wishes, Ken. Well, I wish I could grant you three wishes, but you have answered my five questions, the formal questions. I have one more question because I like to have the open-ended question at the end, and that is, is there anything else you'd like the SGMers to know about grace and the grace process and the goals and objectives, just an open-ended question about grace before I pull in our second guest skeptic and actually do a structured critical review of this clinical practice guideline, grace one. Well, Ken, we need ideas for future grace topics and we need SGMers to come to us with those ideas and we need the grace writing team members to, to expand. So SGMers are welcome to reach out if they're interested with topics or if they have ideas on future topics for grace. Now, also, the skeptical audience that you have, please provide us feedback on the grace process and vision. Well, I'll be the first person to provide feedback or a suggestion, and this may not come as a shock to you. 
But uh, I think a topic area where it's a common presentation, a common diagnostic dilemma, there's a lot of angst among emergency medicine, there's not a lot of high quality literature out there. Do you, do you have any idea where I'm going with this, Chris? Uh, what you talking about, Willis? I'm talking about lytics for acute ischemic stroke. Perhaps GRACE-5, oh, that would be a nice meta sort of thing, that it, it's my favorite number, and it's GRACE-5, and it focuses in on lytics. Now, I know that you need a systematic review meta-analysis to kick that off, but I do have, I've been told, and this is just you and me talking, right? I've been told that Cochrane is updating their systematic review meta-analysis on lytics for acute ischemic stroke, which you could base, GRACE-5, I'm going to keep pushing this, GRACE-5 could look at lytics for acute ischemic stroke. There, there's your feedback. First feedback to take back to the committee. You brought in the big guns, Cochrane. You must know people. Oh, you've introduced me to all the people I know, Chris. Well, thank you very much for coming on the SGEM and uh, bringing us up to speed on this really new initiative. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a real benefit to the practice of emergency medicine. And, you know, my ultimate goal always with this knowledge translation project is that patients get the best care based on the best evidence. And it really sounds like you have a very robust way of doing that. And that's why I picked, as the theme music, Amazing Grace, because I think you're doing something really amazing. So thank you very much to you and all the people that are so altruistic to put their time and effort into doing this. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you to my entire Grace One team. And our second guest on this extra special episode is no stranger to the SGEM. He has been a guest multiple times and a good friend who has taught me much about evidence-based medicine over the last 15 years. Dr. Sunil Upadhyay is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at McMaster University. He's a founding member of BEAM, Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine Program. Sunil is also the inaugural research lead for the EM Researchers of Niagara, which is a novel community-based EM research group within Niagara Region of Canada. He is also the guideline methodologist within CAPE and the SAEM Grace Group. Welcome back to the SGEM, my friend. It has been far too long since you've been on the show. Thanks, Ken. It's glad to be back. Sepsis care and ED settings seemingly has played itself out in the last decade, so it's nice to uh, evolve into different areas. Yeah, yeah. You know, usually when you're on as the guest skeptic, you are talking about sepsis. But this time, it is recurrent low-risk chest pain. How did you get involved in this GRACE guideline group? So as the previous CAPE standards chair and a contributor to BEAM for the last many years, I became interested in guideline methods some years back and started seeking and appraising emergency medicine-relevant guidelines using validated instruments like the Agree-To instrument and most recently the NEATS instrument. Um, after the NGC library in the United States was defunded, I started my own website to find and store as many emergency medicine-relevant guidelines that I could find, and I do have a website for that at www.emergencyguidelines.ca, a little bit of shameless self-promotion which includes monthly searches of as many guideline repositories as I can, libraries and databases, 
And then I find them and list them in the website. And I also do a feature guideline summary for the EM audience worldwide, similar to weekly SGEM podcasts. So the project is still in its early phases, but I'm, it's been positively received by a growing audience. And I'm hoping ultimately that this will become a single stop EM guideline repository that provides a searchable library for EM relevant guidelines and provides toolkits for prospective EM author groups to produce our own guidelines for our own global EM community. Well, it's great to have you on, Sunil, and I think we've got the right person to go through this first GRACE guideline. Now, Chris Carpenter has already given some background information on how GRACE got started and some of the sort of history behind it. So let's dive into the guidelines themselves. We're going to do a structured critical appraisal of the guidelines, and we start with a case. So can you give us a case to frame our discussion about this GRACE-1 clinical practice guidelines on low-risk recurrent chest pain. Absolutely. Happy to do so, Ken. So this is a very common dilemma, I suspect, for many emergency physicians throughout their career. So you're seeing a patient who has returned to the ED with recurrent chest pain. It's their fourth visit in the last 12 months. He has had his chest pain for approximately three to four hours now and is not necessarily classic for ischemic symptoms. His initial high-sensitivity troponin is negative, and his ECG is unremarkable. As you're going through his records, you note that he has undergone significant cardiac testing in the recent past, which was unremarkable. And this included a normal exercise stress test and a CCTA 18 months ago. You also note that he has an underlying anxiety disorder, which is being treated and followed by his family physician. Well, that's a great case because I think it, it, it captures a lot of things to talk about in these patients that present with these recurrent episodes of low-risk chest pain. What are you going to do with this person? How are you going to disposition them? What's the workup? What's the management? And I think there's, there's lots of possible reasonable options depending on your clinical practice environment, your risk tolerance, and things like that. So let's talk just about a couple of the management options you could have for this patient. Sounds exactly right, Ken. So the first thing you could do is reassure this patient after a single negative high-sensitivity troponin and discharge him home now with expedited follow-up as an outpatient. And some physicians may elect to repeat the high-sensitivity troponin testing and then discharge them home with expedited follow-up if the second troponin is negative. That's true. Uh, a third option might be to admit this patient for observation, do further serial high-sensitive troponin testing, and further evaluations as needed, depending on your resources. And some clinicians in their practice environment may decide to admit and refer to medicine or cardiology and let them do the further investigations in an inpatient setting for potential ischemic heart disease. And finally, you may consider referral to mental health or psychiatry services for anxiety depression management with no further cardiac investigations if you feel that's warranted. And those are just five possibilities. There are other possibilities. And the listeners may think, what would I do with this case in my practice environment? But that's where this new GRACE guideline is there to help and guide clinicians. It's put out by the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, and it's an initiative committed to using the GRADE system. And GRADE stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. 
And in fact, GRADE was pioneered at your university there, Sunil, at McMaster University, the home of evidence-based medicine, in creating rigorous, transparent, and trustworthy guidelines on common clinical problems for emergency medicine physicians that are not always directly studied in EM research activities. That's right, Ken. So what our steering group did at the very beginning of the project was we explored many different potential questions, and then we had a vote on the top eight questions because we had to cut them off. Uh, We had otherwise 15, 20 things to consider, which would have been too big for our first endeavor. Did you consider paring it down to just five, my favorite number? We did, but we the group just couldn't get it below eight because the eight that we selected were just deemed too important by all the group members and panelists available. So that was where we had to settle. Five would have been easier, but eight was the final number. All right. So then we reviewed all of these questions in a systematic fashion. The evidence was rated using grade methods, and then final recommendations were used were created using the grade evidence decision framework. And we have a couple references on how the E2D framework is operationalized in an article that I wrote in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine earlier this year. And we also have an accompanying GRACE editorial that was published with this particular guideline last week. So our methods team sought initial grade training, and then we shared that learned expertise within the broad working group, the steering committee, and the panelists many of whom were relative novices in guideline methodology when we started. Well, after two years of hard work, a comprehensive, and believe me, it is, what was it, about 300 pages? A comprehensive document is being published that answer the key diagnostic dilemmas of recurrent chest pain patients who have received normal cardiac investigations to streamline testing and ED length of stay without risk of major adverse coronary events or MACE events at 30 days. So what was the key clinical question that you were trying to answer with these guidelines? So the overarching question to address was, what are reasonable recommendations for managing recurrent low-risk chest pains in the emergency department? And so let's talk about some definitions that were used in the clinical practice guidelines. We've said repeatedly, recurrent chest pain. What does recurrent chest pain mean? So based on our literature review, that's an excellent question. Based on our literature review, recurrent chest pain was defined as patients who have had previous ER visits with chest pain that had led to a diagnostic protocol for evaluation that did not demonstrate evidence of acute coronary syndrome or any flow-limiting coronary artery stenosis. And that would include two or more visits in the ED in the last 12 months. And another key term that I think we should define is, what do you mean by low risk? That's an excellent question, and that's controversial, Ken, in the emergency medicine world, as you know. So based on our literature reviews, low risk was defined by a heart score of less than four points and other scores that have been validated in ED settings, such as the heart pathway or TIMI risk score uh, for disease-specific poor outcomes within 30 days, all of which required an electrocardiogram for risk stratification. So the bottom line is the the various risk scores that have been validated at the cutoffs that they're used currently for was defined for low risk in in our context. All right. And the third term I wanted to clear up before we got too far into this 
is what do you mean by expedited? It's one of those terms that can mean different things to different people. So again, a very important definition to nail down. So the Lit Review suggested that expedited was a time period of three to five days after the ED index visit for that chest pain occurrence. All right, we got those sort of terms defined and out of the way. Let's move on. There is no 100% guarantee safety outcome for patients with low-risk chest pain with respect to 30-day MACE, but the, quote, warranty on negative high-sensitivity troponin test results, either a single or a double test X number of hours apart, should be reassuring to emergency department physicians to discharge such patients with reasonable expedited follow-up. But there is no 100% guarantee. We can't get down to zero risk because if we try to, we will start increasing harm. That's an excellent point, Ken. And I would add that the 30-day MACE risks were even lower when there was a negative CCTA result, i.e. no coronary stenosis, within a two-year preceding window or less than 50% obstructing stenosis on prior angiography in the last five years. And then finally, in patients whom depression or anxiety might be a driver for recurrent ER visits for low-risk chest pain, the use of screening tools in the ED for mood disorders for detection and subsequent referral for mental health supports may be warranted so that they get the proper care they need as opposed to being shuttled down a medical pathway all the time and missing what the root cause of their recurrent chest pain visits are. Okay, what's the official reference for the GRACE-1 guidelines? So the official reference is uh, Musey et al., so M-U-S-E-Y, Paul Musey is our lead author, and it's called GRACE-1, Recurrent Low-Risk Chest Pain in the Emergency Department, and again, published this past week in Academic Emergency Medicine, July 2021, and there's some supporting editorials that go with it as well. But that's the main document. Oh, yes, this is... (sighs) Odd off the press, people. So the author's conclusions were, quote, these guidelines outline and summarize the evidence and strength of GRACE recommendations regarding eight priority questions of interest to emergency clinicians, other healthcare professionals, patients, and policymakers with regards to the evaluation and management of patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain seen in the emergency department. Direct evidence for the selected priority questions in this population is lacking, which highlights areas which will benefit from further robust prospective investigation in this specific population. All right, Sunil, we're going to go through a quality checklist for a diagnostic study. You ready to go? Absolutely. All right. The study population included or focused on those in the emergency department. So we answered yes to that. That was the focus of our literature review. The second question, an explicit and sensible process was used to identify, select, and combine evidence. So we had support from uh, librarians at different institutions of the participants, and then we used the grade rating system of evidence to evaluate the evidence. And then finally, the E to D, or evidence to decision framework, to combine evidence and transform them into recommendations. Oh, I love medical librarians. They're worth their weight in gold. They are so fantastic. All right. The quality of the evidence was explicitly assessed using a validated instrument. 
This was difficult. So we answered this as unsure. We we had troubles with very little direct evidence for the many PICO questions that we uh, were addressing. So we had to incorporate indirect evidence, which makes it hard to do proper quality approval using validated instruments. So this one is a little bit gray zone. All right. An explicit and sensible process was used to the relative value of different outcomes. This was the same challenge. Uh, it was a bit in the gray zone. We did have one patient participant who provided personal lived experiences on his chest pain visits, but certainly more would have been welcome and training them into the process would have been more robust in terms of keeping patient-focused outcomes throughout the process. The guidelines thoughtfully balance desirable and undesirable effects. Yeah, you'll read in the document that with Every question after the recommendation, there's an explicit paragraph on the benefits of following the recommendation and the potential harms and adverse effects of following those recommendations. So the reader gets to take that information and balance it in their own head as to how to proceed with those recommendations. And the guidelines account for important recent developments. To the extent that we had all the evidence within the past year or two up to the time that we were processing it. Uh, with evidence reviews and then transforming into recommendations, we would answer that as yes, it was up to date. The guideline has been peer-reviewed and tested. So it's been peer-reviewed by specialty organizations for endorsements and cardiology, emergency medicine, what have you. It literally just got published now, so we don't have pilot testing data. Obviously, we're going to hope that uh, groups will start to use these recommendations, perhaps operationalize them into quality improvement exercises and use PDSA cycles and see if it starts to perform as recommended. Practical, actionable, and clinically important recommendations are made in these guidelines? Yeah, we think so. There's some clear statements about what uh, we suggest should be done and should be avoided in terms of optimizing high-value care and reducing low-value care. And the final question, the ninth question, the guideline author's conflict of interest are fully reported, transparent, and unlikely to sway the recommendations of the guidelines? I would answer this as yes. Most of the participants, although they may be academic researchers with interests in the field, uh, there is a small paragraph at the end of the publication suggesting that a few of the senior authors on this group have had research funds and projects uh, by various companies associated with the recommendations and diagnostic tests. But none of these had any impact on the recommendations themselves, and we didn't have any industry sponsoring. The funding of this project was actually done by SAEM itself. All right, let's go through the five, I mean, sorry, eight recommendations that were in this first GRACE-1 guideline. And we'll just go back and forth here. So the first recommendation was, in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain, For greater than hours duration, we suggest a single high-sensitivity troponin below a validated threshold to reasonably exclude ACS within 30 days. This is a conditional recommendation based on low level of evidence. So the second recommendation is in adults with recurrent low-risk chest pain, and if they've had a normal stress test within the last 12 months, we don't recommend repeating that stress test again as a means to decrease rates of 30-day MACE events. And this is a conditional recommendation against that practice based on low level of evidence. And number three is important because it talks about, you know, an important question that we have 
and the fact that there really isn't any information to guide us. And so that is, in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain, there is insufficient evidence to recommend hospitalization, either standard inpatient admission or an observation unit stay, versus discharge as a strategy to mitigate major adverse cardiac events within 30 days. Just no evidence. Yeah, and if I if we talk of this a little more, I would suspect that the realities of this recommendation are it depends where you work. As you and I both know, and as preached by our mentor, Andrew Worster from Beam, the answer to all the EBM questions in history is it depends. So it would depend on where you work and how you would run a study like this if you could actually have these choices. The fourth recommendation is in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain and non-obstructive, that is less than 50% stenosis, on prior angiography within the past five years, we suggest a referral for expedited outpatient testing as warranted rather than admission for inpatient testing. And this was a conditional recommendation for that activity with low level of supporting evidence. All right. The fifth recommendation was in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain and no occlusive coronary artery disease, that's 0% stenosis, on prior angiography within five years, we recommend referral for expedited outpatient testing as warranted rather than admission for inpatient evaluation, a conditional recommendation based on low level of evidence. Yeah, this is an interesting dichotomy of why, it's, it's, as you will understand, and as the astute listeners will have detected, it's similar recommendation for less than 50% non-obstructive stenosis on prior angiography. And this one is essentially clean coronary arteries with zero stenosis. But the evidence base was the same. And our cardiology partner on the panel did find it important to make this distinction. Hence, you're hearing the same kind of commentary for two different levels of subocclusive coronary angiographic disease. Our sixth recommendation was in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain and a prior CCTA within the past two years with no coronary stenosis, we suggested no further diagnostic testing other than a single high-sensitivity troponin below your institutional validated cutoff threshold to exclude ACS within that two-year time frame. And this was a conditional recommendation for that activity based on moderate level of evidence. In fact, number six here, that has the most evidence supporting the recommendation. This is the only one with moderate level of evidence. All the other recommendations, the other seven out of eight, either had no evidence or low level of evidence or very low level of evidence. That's correct. The seventh recommendation was in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain, we suggest depression and anxiety screening as these might have an effect on healthcare use and return to the emergency department. This was conditional based on very low level of evidence. And recommendation eight follows up on that with in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain who might then screen positive for those tools that you just talked about, Ken, for recommendation seven, we suggested referral for mood disorder management as this might have an impact on future healthcare use and ER return visits. This was conditional recommendation with, again, a low level of supporting evidence. And this GRACE-1 guideline was put out on Tuesday of this week, and we're recording this section on Friday. And I've seen some Twitter interaction and one of the comments that was made was about these seventh and eighth recommendations saying, 
great, but do we have the mental health capacity now to handle the increased volume of referrals for these patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain that may be suffering from anxiety and depression that are driving these presentations? Do we even have the resources? I mean, we know that mental health is seriously underfunded and under-resourced, and so is it even reasonable? So I just wanted to mention that before we move on to the talk nerdy section. Have you seen anything about that, Sunil, or do you experience that in your practice environment? Can you get these people referral to the appropriate mental health services in a timely or shall I say expedited within three to five days setting? So expedited, certainly not. And we, you know, I, I will freely admit that the evidence around the validity of using these types of screening tools like depression indexes or the GAD, a generalized anxiety disorder screening test, uh, that evidence is lacking in ER settings to my knowledge. So whether they're actually useful and accurate in ER settings remains to be seen. But certainly, anecdotally speaking, I think all of us who have worked for a long time in this field, we can pick up on who just by gestalt has a mood disorder, anxiety or depression driving their uh, visits or their concerns. And then you can just have that shared discussion with them and offer them a referral just in case your sense is without formal screening, for example, your sense is that there is a mental health driver to their recidivism rates. And if you address those things properly, then their return to ER visits for low risk chest pain might be reduced. Well, it sounds like we're already talking nerdy. So let's get into that formally. And we're going to have how many, how many points do you think I picked, Sunil? We all know, Ken, that your favorite number is five. So we're going to probably take on five of these things. Yeah, we're going to go with five. Okay. So the first thing is, was about the panel itself. The panel was described as including geographically, ethnically, and gender diverse ED clinicians. You also included a cardiologist. But what I really liked is that you had a patient representative and three methodologists. So can you discuss why you think having non-clinicians like methodologists and having a patient representative are important to have on the guideline panel? Absolutely. I, I agree with you. This was a critical desire for us to have as many key stakeholders that represent as many diverse viewpoints as we could have related to these topics. And the the particular importance of the patient representative is to be focused on patient relevant outcomes so that their values and preferences for all the different choices of management are the center point of all the recommendations to come. And I mean, they're the recipients of our care. They're our customers, if you want to call it that. So they should have the final say in any shared decision-making process about what's important to them and therefore how we build these recommendations to address exactly what's important to them. Um, there's certainly a growing emphasis on collaborative guideline panels with patient and public partners in what's called co-designing these types of publications to ensure patient-relevant outcomes, focus, and generalizability. Lots of big funding agencies now are insisting on having meaningful patients and public stakeholders and not just tokens. Well, I really did like the fact that you had this diverse panel and that you had non-clinicians and specifically a patient at least to talk about their values and preferences because it fits within that evidence-based medicine Venn diagram framework 
where you can review the evidence, right? And you've got methodologists there to help you because clinicians aren't necessarily great at biostatistics and clinical epidemiology. So having methodologists to really help, you know, look at the literature, look at the methods themselves. And then of course you have clinicians. Great. Cause we need our clinical judgment. And you had a cardiologist who's involved in the team. That's part of that clinical decision-making process. And then of course the third circle in that Venn diagram for evidence-based medicine is the patient's values and preferences. So I think you put together a really good panel to address this. The second thing was about conflicts of interest. And anyone who's listened to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine knows that this can bias randomized control trials, systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and clinical practice guidelines. What conflicts of interest were declared and how did your group manage these conflicts of interest? That's a great point, Ken. And uh, conflict of interest is a real challenge for trustworthiness in guidelines. And the Institute of Medicine 2011 standards for such made sure that COI is addressed very openly and transparently. So our methods team created a reporting structure that all the chairs and the panelists completed. And this was reviewed by our methods group. The conflict criteria were then assessed with previously published international guidelines, international network standards, and related materials within emergency medicine literature and from other bodies. The COI review group then reviewed all the declarations to ensure that there were no significant conflicts amongst our various panelists. And finally, the SAEM board reviewed all the panelists and chairs as well to finally reaffirm all the COI determinations. Now, in the future, we have new GRACE groups that are already underway that will be implementing a new conflict management tool that I actually presented at the recent International Conference of Emergency Medicine Conference in 2021 in the Emirates just last month. It's three simple questions, and luckily this new tool that we're developing had high inter-rater reliability, so it should be helpful to manage decisions around declared conflicts of panelists and chairs going forward. Well, that's really interesting. Will you be publishing that that research that you presented? That's the plan. We definitely have a little bit of checking to do with our mathematics again on our reliability measurements, but I'm hoping to present that at the GIN conference coming up in October. And yes, we hope to get a publication on this very soon. Well, once it gets published, I would like to offer you an open invitation to come in because we will review that, and it might just be a SGEM Extra talking about conflicts of interest in general and a new research tool. I'm sure you'll be up to doing that. I would love the opportunity. Thanks very much. All right. The third thing is about the strength of the recommendations. Oh, six out of the eight recommendations were based on low or very low levels of evidence. One recommendation had no evidence, and only one had moderate level of evidence to support the recommendation. What are clinicians to do when there's a lack of really good information to inform our care? This is a great question, Ken. And as we can see from the commentary flying around social media this past week, uh, this is being reflected by real-world clinicians asking these questions. So the dilemma with asking what we considered are the muddy real-world questions, like the real challenges that ER physicians face, is that there's often a lack of clean and strongly researched trial evidence to answer them. So as such, our panelists had to use direct evidence and indirect evidence and couple them to the other major domains in the grade evidence to decision framework. Now, 
the grade ETD framework has four main categories to address with some sub-questions in each. So the evidence we've talked about. Now, the patient factors are priorities, equity considerations, and values and preference. There's another three questions revolving resource utilization and cost effectiveness. And the final two questions deal with acceptability and implementation feasibility of these recommendations. So we synthesize all of the information we can find out there to inform our determinations. And then we do make that final statement that will either be strong or conditional or weak in answering uh, a given question in whatever direction. Now, whether the audience readers will find our recommendations actionable in their workplace will always be, it depends, as we've discussed, because it depends on the circumstances of your workplace. But this is at least our best attempt to answer a hard set of questions as thoroughly and as transparently as possible, given the current state of the literature as it exists. Of course, suggestions for future research activities to address such gray areas are always offered, but we knew it was going to be a hard slog for the last two years since we, it was going to be difficult to find strong evidence to answer these nebulous questions. And again, clinical judgment with a focus on shared decision making in your next patient encounter, which should be congruent with their values and preferences, will lead to hopefully the safest possible outcomes and without undue excessive admissions and potentially low value testing. So we're trying to thread that needle, if it were. All right. The fourth question then is about cost. Your group considered the potential benefits and potential harms, but did you consider the cost of these recommendations? And and I alluded to that a bit when I was talking about, you know, the mental health resources, you know, it may limit the cost of, you know, having these people be admitted or in an OBS unit or getting more invasive testing done but it also may increase costs on the mental health side. So did your group consider costs when putting these recommendations together? So as you can imagine, Ken, some of these questions, as you've seen, are relatively sparse in terms of strong clinical evidence to answer the key conundrums raised by our panelists. And that's clinical evidence. So I can assure you that the resource and economic evidence was even more lacking and quite often completely absent, which is challenging. We did search common economic evaluations databases like CADET, the Canadian Agency for Drugs, Technologies, and Health, HEED, A-G-E-D. There's another one called INAHATA that looks at health technology assessments and so on. And we found very little relevant information from a costing perspective to inform our PICO questions when we initially launched. So overall, my comment would be that the EM literature is almost silent on formal economic evaluations for many things we do in the ER setting. But at least initiatives like Choosing Wisely campaigns are starting to bring attention to reducing low-value care on testing and treatments. Neither the Americans or the Canadians, of which I'm a member of the Canadian uh, CAPE Choosing Wisely group, addresses low-risk recurrent chest pain in their top 10 lists. And if groups start to operationalize these recommendations, I would love to see groups looking at some questions and spending time and effort on doing costing evaluations and economic assessments on their implementation and seeing what the results are with regards to cost savings. Well, I'm going to pick up on that implementation thing because question five is about how actionable is this? In that leaky pipe framework that I put up that image all the time of the seven leaks for knowledge translation and how it can take over 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside. 
one of the leaks, one of the A's, the seven A's is act upon. And so will these recommendations be actionable in the emergency department? Can clinicians do this? Can they implement these things? The shorter answer is yes, but it depends. So as with all research evidence, and as you comment all the time on your SGM podcasts, it always depends on the interaction between the EM physicians who are providing the care and the services and testing, the patients with whom they're dealing, and the environment in which you operate. So different ER physicians in different settings with different risk tolerances or medical legal realities may look on these recommendations as helpful or maybe not given that the recommendations are mostly conditional with low to moderate supporting evidence, and they might, that might not be enough for them to move the needle and change clinical behavior. We do hope, however, that shared decision makings to bypass unnecessary or low-value testing in appropriately screened low-risk patients, as we've defined them in this document, will be acceptably reassuring for our patients who can then be discharged with expedited outpatient follow-up as needed, and these recommendations will support those decisions. There's urgent need, in my opinion, to have EM-specific guidelines, publications, and recommendations written by EM physician author groups to support our practices in an evidence-based fashion using that tripartite model of evidence-based medicine, as you've described, and ideally not rely on externally written guidelines that are imposed upon the EM community of practice and regrettably used as inappropriate measures of standard of care as determined by non-emergency medicine experts. And that's what the goal of the GRACE groups are going forward. Well, thanks for taking time to talk nerdy with me, those five points. I'm just going to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So I'm going to do that. And I generally agree with what the authors concluded. So for the SGEM bottom line, what I did was I picked the highest level of evidence that was available for a recommendation. And so the SGM bottom line is recommendation number six. There is moderate level of evidence that ACS can be excluded in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain using a single high-sensitivity troponin below a validated threshold without further diagnostic testing in patients who have a CCTA within the last two years showing no coronary stenosis. All right, can you give us a case resolution? Sure. So with this person we introduced at the beginning of the podcast, after discussing the likelihood of low-risk ACS in this patient's recurrent chest pain, and perhaps acknowledgement of some of the anxiety drivers for recurrent ED visits, and an even lower risk of 30-day MACE events given a normal exercise stress test and CCTA within the past two years, the two of you come to an agreement that discharge without further high-sensitivity troponin or other testing is needed in this ER visit and he will follow up with his cardiologist within a few days. All right, Sunil, so how do you suggest we take this new document, this GRACE-1, the first of a series of guidelines coming out of SAEM, how do you take this and apply it clinically? So the answer to that question, as we've said before, and as you talk about for many years in your podcast, Ken, is it all depends It'll depend on where you work as a practicing ER physician. It'll depend on your personal risk tolerances and perhaps your histories in terms of complaints and or medical legal environments. It'll also depend on the patient's values, preferences, and risk tolerances. It'll also depend on your regional practices and your capacity for offering testing in outpatient environments. 
more importantly, it may also depend on what troponin test you have in your hospital. Where I work, for example, in the Niagara region, we just got high sensitivity troponins within this past spring. So a lot of our practices are now evolving because we have the better test, which uh, some of these recommendations may not have been as applicable to us with the old conventional troponins, but are now more relevant in the environment of high sensitivity troponins. So it does depend on a variety of these factors all falling into place so that you can make a shared decision with your patient to expedite outpatient care and let them go home earlier. And of course, we, we would be remiss if we didn't specifically said, we learned that statement, it all depends, from our EBM mentor, Professor Beam, Dr. Andrew Worster. That is correct. All right. So what are you going to tell the patient? So... Assuming we get to this uh, decision, I would say you can be safely discharged home after one negative blood test called a high sensitivity troponin. And this is supported by you had a normal coronary angiogram within the last two years, which is within the quote unquote warranty period of these tests to make sure you'll be safe for the next 30 days pending an expedited evaluation by doctor specialist after you leave here. Your risk of having something bad happen to you in the next month because of your heart is very low. And you should follow up with your follow-up doctor, family physician, or cardiologist, or whoever, within the next week. And of course, if you have any more chest pain, shortness of breath, or any other worrisome conditions, please come back to our emergency department and we can reevaluate you. All right, so it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Dr. John Haggerty from Florida. He knew the character of Alex in the movie The Big Chill was played by Kevin Costner. Sunil, what's the question this week? So our Keener contest question for this topic is, who wrote the lyrics for the Christian hymn, Amazing Grace? Ah, amazing question. All right, so if you know the answer to this Amazing Grace question, then send an email to the sjam at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, S-Gemmers. What do you think of this episode on recurrent low-risk chest pain grace guidance? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. And what questions do you have for us on the Grace One team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine in short order. And if you're trying to collect CME credits, you can get it through Academic Emergency Medicine if you're a subscriber to Academic Emergency Medicine. But even those who are not subscribers to AEM can also get CME credits for listening to this SGEM episode. The content is always free, but there's a small fee if you want to collect the CME. Help support the SGEM and ensure that it continues to be this high-quality, free, open access to medical education initiative. Well, thank you, Sunil, for coming on the SGEM and talking about these amazing GRACE guidelines. Thanks very much, Ken. It's great to be back. And can you give the SGEM tagline? With pleasure. Remember, audience, to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.